I'm Michael Brennis, and this is the Showbiz Roundup. At one time, legendary saxophonist Chico Freeman was himself a young lion on the scene, breathing the life of a new generation into this music. Now, the internationally renowned artist and statesman is mentoring the next generation to advance this music into another century. It's my great privilege to welcome to the show today the legendary Chico Freeman. Chico, thank you so much for being here today. It's my pleasure, man. You started out early on playing trumpet after you found one at home and didn't start playing tenor saxophone until you were in college. In fact, you started college studying mathematics and switched to music later on. I'm just struck that your father, being legendary saxophonist Von Freeman, uh, so I would have thought maybe you'd have started playing tenor saxophone at the age of like four or something. Uh, <laughs> given what was going on around you, the, you know, it was routine to have very famous players at your house rehearsing with your father. But you came to the tenor relatively later. Um, would you talk about how that happened? Yeah, it kind of happened as a fluke, not the tenor, but the, me playing the trumpet. Uh, my dad had um, in the basement, uh, you know, he he, um, he was in the Navy. He was in the Navy Hellcats, I think they were called. And um, uh, my brother and I uh, was downstairs. He, he had stored in the basement his old Navy uniform and, you know, various other things. And he also had down there two instruments. He had a trumpet and he had an alto saxophone. And my brother and I went down there, you know, as kids do, look, being nosy, but looks through stuff. And my brother just happened to grab the saxophone and I took the trumpet just because he already had the saxophone. Mm -hmm. And so we just picked it up and started playing it, you know, blowing it. My father, um, he heard all this noise because, you know, we weren't sounding very good. <laughs> you know, bleh. he calls it bleeding and blatting. But, or, and so, uh, just by the, the luck of the draw, I, I had the trumpet. And so then I I, I had been playing piano already. But uh, so, so then I uh, went to school, joined the school band uh, playing trumpet. And that's how I ended up playing the trumpet and not the saxophone. It could have been the same thing could have happened. And I grabbed the saxophone and my brother grabbed the <laughs> trumpet and it would have been a different story. You know, so that's how that happened. And then and so in the band and then. A little bit later, uh, when I because I wasn't really listening to jazz during that time, I was uh, into the in the Motown and you know and the Drifters and singing groups, and I was sing doing a lot of singing in groups like that, you know, and doing the talent shows in in grammar school. So what happened was uh, uh, I was doing that, and then one day the first jazz record I put on, I just grabbed my father had it was kind of blue. And I heard Miles Davis and that earworm got, got me. And, you know, and then I, I, that's from, since I had been playing trumpet, that was the only way I wanted to play trumpet. So now, of course I heard John Coltrane at the same time. And what I heard with my father playing, he was always practicing at home every day. And, but he was practicing with, uh, um, it, it solo, you know what I mean? Uh, alone, you know, running stuff. So I didn't hear it in context of a musical group. So that sound never really caught my caught me, you know, uh, because I didn't connect it to how it actually would sound in, you know, in a musical context, you know, with other players. So that's that's how I ended up uh, 
playing trumpet first. And in those days, when you were coming up, if you wanted information, you had to seek it out. You had to go to the source. For example, you wanted to study harmony and composition, so you sought out Muhal Richard Abrams. Or like at first, you didn't know what kind of mouthpiece you wanted to use in different situations, so you made mistakes, so to speak. Um, These days, of course, people have certain types of information at their fingertips. Do you feel there's a value in learning the way you did through experiences and seeking out knowledge? What do you think about the way people learn today? Well, I absolutely believe that, um, particularly in universities and colleges, uh, the way they have everything, because they put everything into a European context. Uh, The way European uh, classical music is taught and digested is how they're teaching jazz. And so they put it into this kind of box. I like to say that uh, a lot is missing with regard to that because it's like putting a square peg in a round hole. A lot of things uh, get lost in, in well, between the cracks. And one of those things, because I believe that Jazz produced great artists and great musicians. And culturally speaking, uh, these were Black American musicians. And from a cultural standpoint, the most important thing for uh, us was to be original. I mean, if you look at anything that African Americans do in any discipline, it's about originality. You know, Michael Jordan comes up, but, you know, while he played a lot like Dr. J before, but he had to become Michael Jordan. Dr. J saw Elgin Baylor, but he had to be Dr. J. And same thing with Kobe. He was a Michael Jordan guy, but he found his own voice. And I believe that all of the musicians that you know, the artists that you think of that we hold in high regard, from Coltrane to Sonny Rollins to Lester Young to Charlie Parker, Duke Ellington, Monk, etc., they all are originals. They have their own voice. And that's 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 been the main thing, you know, how, doing that. We don't reward people for copying. You know, that's not a reward that you get. In my growing up in my neighborhood, you know, that's why Vaughn, my dad, he was such an original. You're not rewarded for sounding like somebody. In the beginning, of course, you're learning. But eventually you, you have to find your own self. However, the way that things are done now, with, with this other system, people are rewarded for sounding like someone else, almost clone-like. There was a period where the Coltrane clone thing was so strong that, um, you know. So it's more of an apprenticeship. And it's a university. I studied, I went to school, but I also learned on the street, like you say, you know, the this other way. Uh, I grew up like with that. And... Um, so I got to learn by listening to, um, you know, the great saxophone players of Chicago, including my father, and uh, the piano players, and then, like you say, composition with Muhal and Fred Anderson, and and all of just everything that was around me. And that's how it, that system of learning. Max Rose used to say this to me all the time. Um, he went to Juilliard, and he hated Juilliard. He didn't like it. Because they tried to tell him how to do it. And he told him, he says, listen, I'm playing with Charlie Parker. That's not the way we do things. And he stuck with the way he he graduated, but he stuck doing things the way it was done. And that university, if you will, 
has produced the most creative and some of the greatest musicians. So there's nothing wrong with that system that, you know, that it's, it's proven itself over and over and over again. Um, more so uh, than I think the way things are done now, because it's more difficult for original players to come out. It, it, you hear so many players and they sound the same. They, they have access to the same solos They you know, the solos are now you don't get from the ear. You get it from reading. You don't, you don't hear, you don't hear them. And therefore you lose a feeling, uh, the, the sense of expression of self-expression because it's about your life, not an academic uh, thing in your head. It's about who you are, your being and what you've gone through and expressing that. And that's what these other musicians have in common, you know, the, the, the great ones. And this is what gets lost in the crack of the square peg in the round hole, amongst other things. You grew up in Chicago, moved to New York, where your career blossomed with gigs and recordings with, you know, Elvin Jones, McCoy Tyner, Jack DeJeanette, Don Pullen, just to name a couple. Um, and you led several of your own bands at that time. And then you moved to Europe for, I don't know, 10, 12 years. Can you talk about why you chose to live in Europe at that time? Well, I always, it was kind of funny. Yeah, the choice of the time when I did actually move was kind of circumstantial in a sense. But I always wanted to live somewhere else other than the States. I always felt, and I thought I would be able to do that given the nature of my work, you know, because once you reach a certain level, you don't have to live. And I knew I needed to go to New York to, to, to develop my career and develop that. But I knew I, at some point I wouldn't have to live only in New York. I could live many places. Freddie Hubbard moved to California, you know, the people moved all over. Eric Dolphy moved to Paris and, like that. So I always thought I would. I wasn't sure where, but I also wanted to experience. I mean, during my travels, I was always treated extremely well in Europe. Not only me, but most of, of the Amer American musicians. But I wondered how it would be when, when you were there day to day. You know, it's one thing to travel and you're, they consider you a star or they consider you, you know, uh, something like that. And they, they treat you and they take care of you. I wondered, what if I was there? I wanted to know what the culture was like and in so, somewhere else. So that was my reason for, for wanting to go somewhere. And I had a few places in mind. I thought about going to Japan. I thought about going to Australia because uh, I had been out to all these places. And sort of, I sort of ended up in Greece first. And that's where I went first. And that was because of a woman. And most most of us guys, when we do make a big move like that, it's usually that's the reason. You know, Ralph Towner, he's a friend, good friend of mine. Uh, I ran into him, and we were, and I was him talking, about, and I'm thinking he still lived in, um, uh, in Oregon, you know, uh, and and he was, oh no, I live in in Sicily. I'm like, what? Where did you be? You know, and he was, he said, well, I got married. <laughs> So I said, there it is, you know, so that was that was why I ended up in Greece. But uh, ultimately, I, I, I moved from there to, to Switzerland. And uh, but that just came as a part of that, the, you know, the whole evolution of my time there. But that's the initial reason and how I came over. But it was great. Uh, I, I was able to do things that I had never been able to do in the States when I moved to Greece. 
I mean, I, I got to play this place called Megadon Music Keys and had my uh, my music orchestrated for a chamber orchestra, you know, like 23 strings. And I played in a place which is comparable to uh, Avery Fisher Hall or Carnegie Hall or the orchestra place in Orchestra Hall in Chicago. And, and I, with these strings and my music, and I had my group, a uh, small group in front of the strings and, and did this. And I was able to do that in Greece, in, a, in Athens, that played that place in Athens. So there were some opportunities that were afforded to me that I was, had previously been unable to att- attain in the States, uh, but I was able to do that in America. So I was, it was a good move for me in, in many ways. Were there any challenges involved with living abroad? Always challenges. Yeah, sure, there were. <laughs> um, you know, it's different cultures. Um, learning to uh, adapt. Finding some really positive surprises. Uh, I remember the first time, almost very early in my, uh, when I moved to, um, I was in Thessaloniki in Greece. It, that was in northern Greece. And I was walking down the street and I heard a police siren, you know, going, you know, and I was like, oh, and my instincts made me immediately put my back up against the wall because I knew they were looking for somebody like me, you know, the way my experience is in, in the States. And I'm at my back up against the wall and I'm looking around the police and they go right by me and they keep going. And and, and a, a, a woman passes by and I ask her, I said, what's what's going on? She said, oh, the police are looking for. And this time they were looking for Eastern Europeans. You know, uh, what's, uh, they were looking for. Uh, um, uh, I'll think of the name of the country, but it's near Greece. And for the first time. I felt it was a big relief. Then. So that was a good thing that happened. They, you know, that. Uh, African-American or African uh, people, peoples were not the first people that they were looking for as criminals and other things. So that was a, a relief. Not a, 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 It was a little bit of a challenge for me to accept that in the beginning, to be sure that that was actually the case. Is this really happening? Yeah, is this for real in my yeah. living dream or something? <laughs> so that was good. Um, getting used to playing with... Um, some European musicians where I, cause I missed the, the feeling that American musicians have, you know, as a, there's a, this music was originated by American musicians and, and it's uh there's a feel that happens. And, and while um, this music has spread out throughout the world and everybody is playing a, some version of it everywhere you go, each country, which has is a culture in and of itself, has a little different take on how they do things and, and the feel that they have. So I had to be, I had to learn to be more open-minded and, uh, you know, accepting uh, of different ways, uh, different approaches to the same things that uh, I was doing. So that was a bit of a challenge for me, but I overcame it and I found some really good musicians all over the place. You know what I mean? And again, yeah. And that was cool. Uh, you know, it's, uh, this guy, Fritz Power is Austrian. Wonderful piano. One of the favorite, you know, my favorite piano players, and was great working with him. Uh, I'm, I'm currently playing with a guy named Antonio Farao. He's an Italian guy. He and I've been playing a while, but we have this uh, uh, tribute to Coltrane project. I just come off the road with it. I just came back from that, and that you know, playing with just musicians from different countries. You know, Italy, France, uh, 
Germany and everywhere is 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 pretty interesting uh, or had been, you know. But I'm glad to come back to the states and reconnect, you know, home because that's a very familiar place for me, and I know how things are done, and, and, I, and it's great, you know. So this is maybe just a little off topic, but as someone who lived in Switzerland, my life away from music, I work in the transportation field, and I talk to a lot of people who. Uh, you know, they know a lot about transportation and they just tell me how great the trains are in Switzerland. Is public transit in Switzerland really as good as we've heard? Absolutely. In Switzerland, second class is like first class most other places, literally. Amazing. Yeah, it's it's really good. And the, the trains are on time. I mean, now and again, you'll have, you know, something will happen, but it's really out of the control of, of you know, it'll be something that's really out of, something really breaks. But they they do high maintenance. Um, the trains, they leave, they, they arrive and leave on time, again, unless something really extraordinary stops it. So for the most part, you can you can set your clock by those trains and, and, and it's really cool. It's good. And the trains are comfortable. Uh, a little bit has changed a bit now because they've opened their uh, uh, doors to more immigrants from places. So there are, are people that are not of the Swiss mentality. But on the other hand, I once accidentally left my saxophone on the trains and I got it back. Yeah. So but I'm not so sure because, you know, with all of the today, it's, things have changed. You know, people. Come, yeah, things have changed. So. Uh, that that, but the trains are still really pristine, and 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 like I say, second class trains are like first class everywhere else, and they run well, very well on time. The only other challenge I had in Switzerland is they have so many rules here, and uh, people like quiet, the Swiss people. But uh, so I, it, it, in one way, I prefer to to, to live in a um, a, a, a culturally rich or immigrant rich neighborhood. Because they like music, <laughs> you know, so, you know, uh, you know, like that, you know, people over here, like, it's so funny. The law said the, you can't play on Sundays here in Switzerland. Literally, that's a rule. That's a law. Right. Except, but on Sundays, the Brazilian community, even the church people, they, they, they have music for their church services. So they got all these dr drums going on and everything. Yeah. I was in a neighborhood, and I like the Italians. You know, it's I like that. But the the Swiss have really strict rules that you have to abide by, and that that's a challenge sometimes. But I found ways to overcome those. Do you notice any difference being back in the U.S. in regard to like the investment that European countries make in their art communities and their other communities versus here? How do you how did it feel to you when you came back to the U.S.? Well. Uh, prior to leaving, I, 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 I mean, there was always the, the grants like the national endowments and all of those, but it seems so select, uh, you know, not everybody seems to be able to get one of those. Although I have to say, I recently got a jazz world grant from, uh, South arts. Yeah. Yeah. And I was able to do, uh, the, my legacy project dedicated to my family and all that, but that's the first time I got a grant in my life from the States. However, in Switzerland, I have almost every year money or have gotten money uh, except for the pandemic years, uh, you know, to get money to do, to do different projects. And I, and not just uh, I me, mean, but I, but I see Swiss people, uh, 
Swiss people getting these the support. Then not only here in Switzerland, but almost every other place I've seen in Europe, there are these outlets and 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 ways of uh, uh, that they have for just to support. And many of the festivals, because there were so many festivals in Europe, a lot of those festivals have the support of the of the town or the country or the or the state within in the country. So uh, yeah, I think I, it it had shown to me that it was much better or, or much more uh, uh, available over here in Europe than I saw in the States. You're bringing a quintet to your date here in Madison in October that includes Mike Alimana, a longtime friend of the Freeman family, but also a number of, I don't want to say younger players because they're not. They're really advanced, great players, but they haven't been on the scene as long as you and Mike, for that matter. And I've spoken to a number of musicians who feel sort of a sense of duty to mentor younger musicians into this music. Is that something that you do intentionally? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, if you think about it, that's the that's the part of the culture that I'm trying to maintain. I was mentored by Elvin Jones and uh, McCoy Tyner, and to like you know Barry Harris and 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 Kenny Barrett, people like that. You know, the, um, I played with these great musicians, and I was able to do that just like they were mentored by. Uh, you know, Coltrane and um, and and then Coltrane was mentioned by Miles and Monk. And, you know, it, it's like that. Problem is, is all of our icons are gone. And it's been hard to make new jazz stars, you know, quote in quotes, uh, so that or, or, or to maintain that. Because so, I, I believe that uh, where I've arrived at my career, I should be able to hire younger players to, to, to like Miles hired Wayne Shorter and Tony Williams and Herbie and so on and so on. Art Blakey, perfect example. And uh, so, uh, yeah, I too, I try to do that. And I try to look for new and talented uh, players, you know what I mean, that that can help me express myself and what and my music and my voice and also want to learn about eventually themselves, you know, themselves expressing themselves and their voices within that. So answers a Quick and short, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, Chico Freeman, I can't thank you enough for being on the show today. It's been really a great pleasure to to meet you and to talk to you today. And uh, we're really so looking forward to seeing you here in Madison in, in uh, later in October. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And I got to tell you, I want to thank you because uh, I've done a lot of you uh, a lot of uh, interviews, but your questions are in depth. And really good. I like that you had great questions, and, and I appreciate that very much. Thank you. That's it for this edition of the Showbiz Roundup. Our theme music is performed by Outside the Sphere, an experimental duo consisting of Tony Barba and myself. If you'd like more information about this show or any of the past or future shows presented by Bluestem Jazz, you can head over to bluestemjazz.org. And you can follow my doings or be in touch via rattletakebuzz.com. Catch you later.